Morning, Dora Pope. Good to see you all. I'm going to do my best with these Hebrew names. <laughs> Would you stand with us, with me, or stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Exodus 31, 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Don. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The question I want to start with uh, is how should Christians think about art? It's kind of a fraught question, actually. Um, there, there are numerous views on this. Uh, one thing I think we can safely say is that it's often the case that churches can, not of course not exclusively, or not everyone does it this way, but often churches can view art, human art, uh, with suspicion. Um, that it's a distraction, as many of the things we've been talking about in the series, a distraction from kind of the important business we ought to be focused on, uh, that it's, I don't know, there are numerous ways people can be skeptical, Christians can be skeptical about art. Maybe that's you. Maybe you carry some skepticism about investing time and energy in human artistic uh, endeavors, either as an artist, someone who's creating something, uh, or as an appreciator, as a receiver, as a consumer of art. But even if that's you, even if you hold some skepticism, even if you have a place in your mind that's kind of like, eh, I, I just don't know if that's something I really need to give my energy to, I'm guessing even you, even mo all of us, most of us, probably have moments where we've experienced some work of art, be it film or TV or, you know, from the fine art world, a painting, photography, uh, a novel, whatever it may be, poetry, where we have had a moment where this art has just compelled you in some kind of unmistakable way where you've just been, had your, had your horizons widened, where, where the beauty of the world, the beauty of creation, the, 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 the richness and power of just looking and understanding a di another human individual, another image bearer, or something like that has just moved you in ways that have hung on to you for years, even. So we've had those experiences. I suppose most of us have in one way or another. My question is, what did that experience have to do with God? What did that experience have to do with God? Does art have anything to do with God? Um, you know, the church has had numerous relationships, or, yeah, different churches, I suppose, have had numerous relationships with the arts over the years, but there's also this incredible reality that a lot of us don't even acknowledge, that there is just this incredible heritage that we have. Uh, author Terry Glaspie writes that many of us are just so unaware of how many of the great masterpieces the universally admired works were created by people who share our faith commitment. Well, that's one thing to view art, Christian art, so-called Christian art, art by people who share a faith commitment. But what about if we've had the experiences from people's art who do not share our faith commitments? What if we've been moved to tears by the work of a so-called secular artist? What do we do with all of these things? How do we untangle this ball? So that's what we're considering today. We're considering the good gifts of God to be found in human art. Um, and this is kind of a part two, I think, from last week. Last week, we, list, we, uh, we talked about the good gifts of God found in human work in general. And of course, art is kind of one subset, and I think we mentioned it a few times. Art is one subset of that broader category of kind of human work that we do, that cultivational work that God has empowered his people to do. Art is kind of a narrow sliver of that. But we're going to kind of focus in on that. Maybe this week, not so much from the creator side, although that's a worthy conversation. What's it mean to be a faithful artist as a Christian? Um, see last week for a little bit more on that, although we could certainly go more in depth. This week, I want to, I want to think more so from the reception side. 
how do we be faithful receivers of art that's around us, human art? To answer that question, of course, we have to define what is art, what are we even talking about? And unfortunately, <laughs> attempts to define art are controversial and debated. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of warring camps. And can you even define such a thing? And I think those are fair questions to ask. Uh, it was funny. I looked at Wikipedia uh, for, for a definition, maybe not the most reliable source for something like this. But they, uh, they kind of blended the three most popular dictionaries' uh, definitions into one. So I think that's a decent starting place. Uh, they said, art is a diverse range of human activity and the resulting product that involves creative or an imaginative talent expressed of technical proficiency, beauty, emotional power, or conceptual ideas. Art includes things we might typically associate, like painting and photography, novels, film and TV, sculpture, poetry, architecture, weaving, clothes making, music, the culinary arts, and beyond. Um, there are whole disciplines, like deeply developed, richly profound artistic traditions that some of us don't even know anything about. We don't even know they exist, and yet there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people working in those things, expressing themselves in those mediums. You know, for Christians, for Christians, the, the production and the consumption of art, it can be a deeply, deeply important channel for taking the truth beauty and goodness of God and making them even more vibrant, more encounterable, more penetrating in some ways. That's what we're going to argue. Artists play a particularly unique role in, in, in giving us vision to see just the way that things are in this world around us. American novelist Walker Percy, he described novelists in particular as, quote, a physician of the soul of society. And I like that. I think that, that definition could apply to multiple mediums of art, but, but I think the way that novels work is especially appropriate to, to conceptualize them that way. He also said this, Percy said, bad books always lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. And I think it's interesting to note that Christian art, so-called Christian art, art created, produced by Christians, it can lie. It can give a truncated or an overly simplistic or a... Uh, I don't know, overly rosy or whatever picture of the way things are. Or, or it can tell the deepest truths imaginable in ways that are honest and real, ways that bring those truths down into the soul level for our reception. The same can be said of non-Christian art. As all genuine truth is God's truth and all genuine beauty is God's beauty and so on and so forth. I like to, so, okay, this graphic here, um, yeah, there we go. That's without, uh, without uh, pieces of it cut out. This is, this is an image, and this screen is about the worst thing I could possibly put this on for trying to, like, uh, engage with this painting in earnest. Um, I recognize it's all washed out and stuff, but do your best. You can't even, I know we can't even hardly see what's going on here. Um, but this is a painting. It's called Region in South Tyrol, Landscape in the Morning Light. This artist's name is August Berenson. Uh, he was German. This painting was produced in 1851, and this has been the graphic that's been up here every week for us. And, um, you know, I was, I, you know, occasionally I'll end up doing uh, the graphic design when I'm too lazy and distracted to uh, ask one of you who actually has talent in such things to uh, design a series slide for us or whatever. So the week before a new series starts, I'm like, ah, I didn't ask Krista to do it, so... Uh. <laughs> I've got, to, I've got to do something. So that's what happened with this one. Um, but I was, looking for, I was looking for a painting that I, th I thought could kind of capture some of the foundational ideas that we've just been unpacking now for like 10 weeks in this series and will for a few more weeks. And this is the painting that, that sort of landed on me kind of with a thud and kind of left its mark on me. So this is a, a landscape painting of an area in Germany and you can't hardly see, but in the foreground, of course, the closest foreground is just nature. It's just this beautiful, idyllic place. But then there's these two women uh, gathering water from this little creek there in the medium ground. And then there's a man walking some cattle to the right. And then as you push for, further back, you can see like their little village or whatever it is back there. You see some buildings just kind of peeking over the hills. And I just love the way that, A, of course, it's, it, 
It's a beautiful painting. Uh, it captures, captures the natural world with a high degree of, of splendor and beauty. Um, but then I just love the way it dignifies the work that these people are doing. There's a lushness to the activity they're doing that's uh, to take care of their animals and take care of their village and take care of one another. And you've got the village in the back. And then I just love the way that this mountain is just standing kind of magisterially over the whole thing. And to me, that just kind of, it kind of captures the interplay we've been talking about. There's this in the foreground, this human work, but then that, that mountain in the background just makes me think of the divine divine presence kind of overseeing this whole thing and you know you've got a huge a huge human building like a multi-story tower kind of middle to the left but then no matter if you were standing right next to that thing you'd think oh this is gigantic but then look how small and tiny it is in comparison to this mountain formed by the hand of God this painting to me just captures so many of the dynamics that we've been talking about and uh and I don't know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about it as I've, you know, put this before you. Uh, I actually ordered a print of this that we're going to hang in the sanctuary upstairs so we'll be able to actually look at it in some detail. It'll be really nice. But uh, what else was I going to say about that? I don't know. This painting is very centering for me. It reminds me of the dignity of the work that God has given to hum humans and, and the glory and the beauty of the world that he's made and the, the proportionality between those two things. Good art has a way of doing that for us. I don't know why I'm using this microphone. I have a headset microphone. <clears throat> That's habit right there. So, let's pray. Let's pray. We're going to make a biblical case for why we should even be talking about this stuff to begin with, and then we're going to get more practical from there. But let's start with prayer. Father, we need you. We need you. We need uh, your illumination of your scripture. We need your truth, Lord. We need, um, we need right understanding of these things, God. We don't want to just jump on a bandwagon or we don't want to force ideas into your mouth, Lord. We just want to receive what you have for us. And it, as, I've, as I've studied these things over the years and particularly over these last few weeks, Lord, I am just impressed, deeply impressed with how much you hold up a surprising vision of the value of human artistic efforts, Lord, and the way that your grace even can be found through them. So, uh, to the extent that those things are true, we ask for the eyes to see them this morning. Help us, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start, we've got three movements here. The first is I just want to give you very quickly and very crudely uh, a, a, a quick, a brief theology of art. And I know that this is going to touch on some of the themes that we've been blasting through uh, for the last several weeks, but forgive me for any repetition. Uh, but here we go. A theology of art starts, what chapter? Genesis 1, of course, as everything does. Genesis 1, we have, you know, we won't belabor it here because we've spent a lot of time there, but God creates, God designs and God orders all of creation and he declares it good. We can see, we can very naturally see God as the first artist, the artist from which all other art is derivative and flows from. God is the artist who creates all of creation and all of its diversity, its complexity, its beauty, its pleasurableness, its delight even. But then, one of those creations, humanity, is actually created in God's image and it's meant to actually share some of the responsibility for overseeing and developing and cultivating the good world that God's made. God creates humans to be his image bearers and they too are meant to cultivate his good world. That's going to involve artistic endeavor. Listen to this. In Genesis 2.19, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. One of the first commands that God gives to Adam here is the act of artistically naming all of the animals of creation. God says, I want you to provide category and names, the sounds that we are going to associate with all of these amazing creatures that I've made. Go do it. God gives Adam that agency in that task. One of the first tasks is a plainly artistic task. Isn't that fascinating? The theme continues. 
uh, we'll just skip a lot, but we'll go to Exodus 31, the text that Gabe just read for us. Well, you know, listen to this. What we have here is the Lord saying to Moses, look, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah. And I, listen to this. I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Here's what's interesting about this. This filling with the Holy Spirit of God, that's the first time this happens in the Bible. It's going to happen a lot more. But the first instance of someone being filled with the Spirit, this language being employed this way, is for what? With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. And then he goes on to describe in detail what's going, what's going to happen. But the Spirit of God, the first time the Spirit of God fills a human, at least that it's named so explicitly here, uh, it's for artistic purposes. It's to give artistic skill in the interest of, actually, in this case, building the tabernacle. He says it's going to involve working with gold and silver and bronze, cutting stones, carving wood, working in every craft. And they're going to do all kinds of amazing things. It's going to build the tent, the, the, the table, the utensils, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the burnt offering. All this stuff is going to be finely, artistically, beautifully, skillfully crafted to the glory of God and to communicate something to worshiping Israel who is going to be using this for a long time to come. So the first filling of the Holy Spirit of God is for artistic expression. Many, many types of artistry were commissioned by God himself for the tabernacle where the worship of this God would take place. Maybe I should say, it's not that, that every act of creativity is, is spirit-filled in this same way. Um, I think this is a very, very special moment. Uh, but I also think it's fair to say some acts of <laughs> some other acts of creative expression are spirit-filled in this way. Maybe some of you in this room have been, have been creatively working. You've been working in some art or another, and the spirit you've maybe encountered in some way that's hard to describe, but you, you know that it's happened. The spirit of God has empowered you, has inspired you, has moved you to complete this work. Maybe so. But even if it isn't one of these moments where it's like, wow, the Spirit of God came in a fresh way to inspire me and empower me to do something, it is still fair to say that there is no act of creativity that isn't sustained and empowered by God at a fundamental level. That's what we've been learning about now for 10 weeks. It is God who has given you those aptitudes and those abilities. And even though it takes hard work to become skilled at anything, lots of practice and trial and error and so on and so forth, it is still God who's enabled that time that you've invested to actually manifest into a craft, a skill, an artistic ability. We could also, if you're curious, if you're taking notes, jot down Second Chronicles chapters 3 through 4, which has a similar account of just the complexity involved when Solomon commissioned these artists to build his temple. It's a really, really beautiful passage, but we just don't have time for it today. Maybe something that we're all a little bit more familiar with comes in the Psalms. There are numerous, numerous instances across the Psalms, which are, it, that book itself is a collection of poetry and songs. It's, it's, quite plainly, a work of artistic expression. But within the Psalms itself, there are calls like this repeatedly. Listen to this. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, the musical instrument. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Here's express permission to write music, to write songs to the praise and glory of God. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Music is used, is to be used in the worship of God to create new beautiful music that, stoles, that stirs the soul towards the worship of our King. The arts, in numerous ways, are intimately woven into the worship of God for the people of Israel. Professor Thaddeus Williams, he summarizes the creative communication of God in general across the Bible. He's making the case that God himself just is so creative in the way that he communicates his truths to people. It's not merely through simple acts of sort of speech, although he does plenty of that. But listen to this. Here's, here's Williams. He says, God never limited himself to didactic prose when revealing himself to Israel. 
He tells multi-sensory truth, truth with fire-cooking meat, blood painted on doorposts, talking donkeys, vomiting fish, hungry bears, wandering goats, crucified snakes, burning plants, thunder, smoke, rocks, bugs, milk, and honey. He tells truth in vivid images, skeletons coming to life, apocalyptic sea monsters, and minstrel rags. Then there's the prophetic performance art, things like Isaiah wandering naked for three years, Hosea marrying a well-known harlot, and so on and so on and so on. We have a creative God, so it shouldn't surprise us that he, he calls his people to be creative as well, even in the communication of his truth. If we jump ahead to the New Testament, we've already talked about a couple of these as well, but remember, I'm say it again, we'll probably say it again before the series ends. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he incarnates in human flesh. He comes to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and with me here in this world. And what does he do? for his entire adult life before he begins his public ministry. He's a carpenter. Jesus himself is a carpenter. He, he crafts things out of wood and other materials. Jesus himself was an artist. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus also, think of the way he, he taught. Jesus taught using parables often and other creative means. Jesus, by, I mean, by any standard, you don't have, have to be a Christian to acknowledge us. He is one of the most interesting, creative, and memorable teachers in all of human history, probably the most. It's not just that. It's not just Jesus modeling this kind of creativity and artistry for us. I think of a, a really interesting passage in Acts chapter 17. So after the birth of the church, Jesus ascended to heaven. He's empowered his people with his Holy Spirit to come and dwell within them in a new way. Paul is ministering in this Roman world amidst the Roman Empire. And there's this amazing story. A lot of you probably heard it. Where Paul is, it says, verse 22 of Acts chapter 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the uh, Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, so as, as I observe some of your artistic creations used for your religious uh, expression, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, now, he quotes, he quotes a contemporary poet here, uh, a pagan poet. He says, for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. Even, and even as some of your own poets have said, he gives another quote, for we are indeed his offspring. Now Paul again. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, there is a lot going in there. And maybe one day we'll do an entire teaching series just around this short little passage, this interaction with Paul. But at, at a very basic level, what we see is that the Apostle Paul was deeply conversant with pagan poetry. Did you see that? And we don't know exactly why. Maybe he just thought it was interesting. Maybe this was part of his evangelistic strategy to sort of understand their minds and their, you know, their religious perspectives so that he could communicate the gospel more clearly as he clearly is using it here. But regardless, Paul was conversant with pagan poetry. He, was, he knew it, and then he was able to see these graspings at truth that these pagan poets were getting at and to say, you are reaching for this. You are striving for it. You are trying. He even earlier, the pastor talks about them kind of stumbling and feeling their way towards God. He says, let me just bring the truth and the fullness of what you are grasping and seeing at in part. Let me give it to you clearly. The God that you are grasping for, he is real. He exists. And you're not going to find him as a carved idol. You're not going to find him in your temples. He's actually incarnated in this man, Jesus. And how do we know this is real? Because that Jesus raised from the dead. 
to save you. So Paul's conversant with the art of his day, and he's actually able to use that as a way to point to the truths that they're gesturing at to bring them the gospel. Maybe one other touch point in the New Testament I would mention comes at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. So Revelation 21, uh, the whole book is, is just, it's mysterious and it's poetic and it's this wild apocalyptic literature that's really hard to, hard to interpret. But regardless, the end of, of Revelation, the last two chapters are meant to give us a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. What is the final resting place for the people of God? It's a new, newly, freshly recreated world where God dwells finally with zero barriers between himself and the people that he loves. And what's it look like? Well, here's, here's one of the statements. This is Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. He says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into, the glory, into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I want you to see two things just from this little passage about the new creation. The first is that this new creation is a place of God's creative splendor all over again. We didn't even get into the description of this heavenly city coming down and the jewels and the amazing like craftsmanship that this involves. But it's a place of God's glory, his creative glory shining out powerfully. But also, maybe we, we, we miss this, it is also a place of redeemed humanity's creative splendor. That's exactly what is meant by this idea that the, the nations will walk by the light of God and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Most commentators agree this is talking about the amazing cultural artifacts, artistry, uh, the works in general, but certainly the artistic works. They will be brought into, underneath the lordship of Jesus into the heavenly city. All the splendors of these diverse artistic traditions, creative traditions brought together, their glory brought underneath God, celebrating God, adorning this city, giving glory to God within it. Do you realize that? They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So that's brief. That's a brief uh, picture the way the, the Bible speaks of art from the Old across the New Testament. Maybe one more thing we could say about art in the Bible is just the fact that the Bible itself is this supremely beautiful artistic creation. I don't know if you recognize that or not. It takes eyes to see this for some of us, especially when we've, you know, we haven't quite developed a taste for it yet. But the Bible itself is a collaboration between God, the inspiring spirit of God, and human authors resulting in one of history's most indisputable, timeless artistic achievements. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible still continues to be, in our culture, like a deeply valued uh, artistic achievement studied for its literary qualities alone. Although, of course, we believe it's far more than that. But it's not less than that. It's, it's far from less than that. You know, there's poetry all over. Think of the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, the countless other poetic sections. But more than that, it's just this book of amazing literary design. Uh, it's a library, rather, with each book like, containing this incredible literary design across this wide array, array of genres, from law to history, wisdom to poetry to narrative, uh, personal letters to prophecy to the apocalyptic. And when you take the whole thing together in the way that God in his glory has made the whole thing to just have this incredible coherence and interplay between the various parts of, of, the all, of all 66 books of the Bible, it's almost impossible when you really get a glimpse of it not to just be bowled over by how amazing a feat it really is. The Bible itself that we read from and study from and try to submit ourselves to here every single week is a work of supreme artistic design. Did you know that? Shame on me if I don't give you that sense over time. So that's art. That's a brief, brief, brief theology of art. 
Now I want to talk about specifically taking these ideas, talk about the gifts of art. What is it that, that is actually gifted to us through art? How does God use human art even to bless us, to inspire us, to move us, to draw us closer to him? Um, so author and lecturer uh, Terry Glassbee, he wrote this incredible book last year. It's called Discovering God uh, Through the Arts. And I will say, like, this is a subject that's fascinated me for basically my whole adult life, and I've, I've read quite a bit on it. But I can't help but, but feel that most of the books I've read on the subject just end up being a little bit reductionistic for me. I'm like, I don't know. There hasn't really been one that I've been like, this is something I would just gladly put in the hands of anyone who is interested in this. I think until I found this book. So we actually do have copies of it over there on the bookshelf now. Um, you're free to, free to pick up. Uh, we're also, I'm also leading a book club through this right now, and so we just had our first meeting last week. If you want to jump in for the second, you know, or the next two-thirds of the club, email me. Let me know. We'd love to have you. Um, all that to say, I, I, I think this book has, has a lot to offer, even though I'm, I've only read about half of it so far. It's quickly becoming one of my absolute favorites on the subject. All that to say, in this book, Terry Glassby, he discusses nine important ways that God often uses art to... to uh, to form us, to form us. And so rather than trying to reinvent the wheel and, you know, do all this myself, I thought, I'm just going to quote, quote Terry Glassby here, use his categories. This isn't the end-all, be-all. These aren't the only things we might say about this, but I think these are nine very, very useful things to think through about how art can, uh, like, uh, to think about the specific gifts from God that come through human art. So I'll just go through his, using his language. The first is this. Uh, human art has the capacity to teach us to pay attention. I'm not going to say much about all these or we'll be, here, we'll be here for a week, but it teaches us to pay attention. There is something about the organization of art, whatever it is. Let's just take a photograph. He uses this example in his book, but you know, you're looking out at the vastness of a forest. Maybe you're taking a nature hike or something like that. It's easy to get kind of lost in the overabundance of it all, but a good photographer who can kind of zoom in on one piece, one aspect, one moment, enables us, to, through that photograph, to look in and see all this fullness that's there that's often lost to us when we're just kind of going through uh, the motions ourselves. Good art teaches us to pay attention. Along with that, a second is it teaches us to rediscover a sense of wonder. To rediscover a sense of wonder. That is one of the chief things that art can do. We live in a wonderful world. That's an idea that we've been trying to just repeatedly revisit for the last weeks here in our church. But good art has the ability to just lift that up and put tie a bow on it, make it unavoidable and unmistakable. I remember for myself, uh, a lot of my examples end up coming from film because that's probably the kind of, the, as a consumer, the, the medium of art I'm just most excited about and passionate about. But I remember the first time I saw this film, The Thin Red Line, uh, by Terrence Malick, who's one of my favorite directors. And it's a film about war. It's a World War II film, but it, it's, I, I heard one person uh, describe it as, uh, actually it was the comedian Bill Hader. He was, he was talking about this film. Uh, somewhere, and he said, it's the first war film I ever saw that I felt like was from God's perspective. Now, often war, war films are from, you know, a nation's perspective. Then they're like, look, here's, here's our soldiers going to fight, and here's why we were in the right, and they were in the wrong, or whatever. And uh, I'm not going to comment on that necessarily, all that to say, it's really fascinating to get a film that you feel like has zoomed out of the, the reasons humans have for killing one another, and kind of gives you the sense of like, oh my goodness, like, there is, a, there is a scale of tragedy here, a cosmic scale of tragedy here, that this is what humans do to each other that uh, I had never really considered before. But even more specifically than that, I just remember the way that this film, it, it takes these long shots of just this beautific nature, and you'll just see these long lingering shots of animals and trees and forests and fields and all of this stuff, and it just looks like there, there's so many moments in the film where you get this Edenic paradise, and then suddenly, like, explosions come into it, you know? And I remember just for months after I saw that film the first time, just, like, seeing trees differently around me. And it wasn't, like, weird stuff, like I'm trying to worship the trees or something like that. But I just remember, like, man, God has imbued this stuff with so much dignity. And I have this propensity to just trample it in ways that I just became freshly aware of. It's an example. That was an example in my life discovered the ability to pay attention. I discovered the ability to, 
to have a sense of wonder about things that had become mundane for me. Art also conditions us to dig for deeper meanings. It conditions us, you know, really challenging art can often be some of the most rewarding, the kinds of art that don't open themselves up to us on a first viewing or listening or whatever it may be. Um, and when we're in the habit of engaging art like that, and having to come back again and again and again to find what it has to reveal, that builds a muscle within us that can pay dividends in our own spiritual lives as we're processing, like, what is God up to in my life? We learn the skill of not just think, assuming probably nothing because it, <laughs> it doesn't come to mind right now. We begin to flex and build a muscle that searches for deeper meanings all around us. In art, sure, but in life, even more importantly. Another thing he points out, and, and this is probably where a lot of us go when we think about Christian art specifically, but this is a really powerful benefit, is that it can bring the scriptures and theological truths to life. You know, there's something about seeing, uh, I think, is it Rembrandt? Some, some of you will probably know Rembrandt, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Is that the painting? Um, or Rembrandt, rather, is the, one, is the artist. Um, there's something about that painting. I actually have it in my office. It's kind of silly that I don't know who painted it. There's something about that painting that just puts flesh on this parable that Jesus told. And it's interesting thing. Okay, we've got cascading Russian nesting dolls here because Jesus is telling an artistic story about something that didn't actually happen. He's using a story to illustrate one of the most profound theological truths possible about the way grace works in the kingdom of God. What is the loving heart of the Father towards the wayward sinner? Jesus tells a story to capture it for us. Well then, long time later, Rembrandt comes along and paints it. He depicts it. He puts it in such a way where every little detail just makes, for me, it makes me feel feel that love and that grace in a way uh, that I hadn't before, or at least from different angles than I had before. There's a rich tradition of Christian art, and even non-Christians, depicting biblical events, theological themes in ways that just help us get a different perspective and a fresh lens that can be really, really powerful, deeply formative for us. Uh, another category, good art helps us deal with our emotions. It becomes a place where we can encounter really hard things or really joyful things or really relatable things or things that we have no experience with and have to process through them in a way that's far different than if we were actually going through the thing ourselves. It kind of creates this, this, this place for safely processing emotions that can be very, very powerful. Another interesting one he points out is that good art has the ability to comfort and implant courage within us. We've probably all experienced that at some point, the comfort of a story where, man, and sometimes this can be trite, but, but it's, it doesn't have to be because the fundamental reality of the universe is that good will finally triumph over evil. When you see those themes depicted powerfully and truthfully in a story, you can be emboldened by that. I think that's one of the great powers of like something like the Lord of the Rings. Whenever you get lost in this fantastical world where there is real, deep, powerful darkness, and yet the good the beautiful and the true does triumph over it. You, begin to, you can begin to live differently in, in light of a powerful story like that. Another one, this one's huge. Good art develops our empathy. Develops our empathy through encountering the stories of people that are not like us, that don't look like us, that don't think like us, that maybe don't even share our faith. We expand our capacity to understand what it's like to be human in this world. That's good for us. That is good for us, whose great commandment is to love God and to love people. That is a good unto itself, to have our empathetic muscles stretched by good art. Good art also, Glasby goes on, says it, it has the ability to awaken a passion for justice within us. It often motivates us. And I, have, I wrote this down, this is a silly example, but I, I love this example. And I'm thinking about the fact that uh, when I was, I think, in ninth grade, me and a bunch of bu buddies from my basketball team went and saw the movie Remember the Titans. Everybody remember that movie? Okay. Suzanne and I just re revisited it uh, a year or two ago. I was like, I wonder if this movie holds up. And I thought it was wonderful. I still thought it was like such a, such a joyful, sweet movie. You know, it's funny, like as an adult now, uh, grappling with issues of race in America. It's easy to look at Remember the Titans and kind of sneer at it, like, oh, what a simplistic picture of things. But whatever, like, let's avoid that impulse. 
Remember the Titans for nine, <laughs> for, for a 12-year-old Cameron Hager was a film that when I walked out of that film, I remember thinking like, I want to be one of the people who would accept a devastating cost for including, for example, my black football teammates. I just remember it stirring something up in me and like leaving this mark on me that I don't know if it would have been there otherwise. I mean, sir, I, I trust that Jesus and the gospel would have been at work building that within me as well, but it was the work of these artists in the context of a PG-rated, commercially-driven Disney movie. It did something to me. It pointed me a direction that I think God was, was eager for me to be pointed, and I'm grateful to that. You know, it's kind of a silly example, but it awakened a passion for justice in me, just as Terry Glaspie says it would. Um, finally, he talks about good art can be something that assists us in prayer and contemplation. Uh, good art can be something that we literally use, we actually use, uh, as we're trying to contemplate the truths of the Scripture. And that kind of goes along with the one about bringing theological truths to life. But, um, yeah, I, I suppose many of us have been inspired to prayer, have been motivated to deeper reflection because of art. Uh, maybe some of us have even taken some of those moments or those experiences we've had with good art and literally used them as tools for kind of praying through particular things or whatever. In some sense, that's what any good Christian book on prayer is. You know, even if it's nonfiction or theology or whatever, it's still an artistic work that we're utilizing uh, for deeper reflection and even contemplation with God. Okay, there's my laundry list. Here's my point. Sum all that up in a few sentences. God has enabled and empowered human art to carry a dizzying amount of gifts. If we have the eyes to see them, they're there. This is why we as a community, we take time for things like doing summer book clubs where some, you know, of course some of those book clubs are doing things like theology books and so forth, but even when we're doing things like novels, which some of us are doing, uh, we're trying to develop the eyes to see in all that God has for us. See all that God has for us in the artistic expressions of both our brothers and sisters within the church as well as our neighbors outside the church. We're trying to develop the eyes to see all that there is to find by image bearers, working with their gifts to tell the truth, to present beauty, to offer up goodness to us. So those are the gifts. Last thing I want to say is a few, a few practical ideas for connecting with God through art. First thing I would say is remember the heart. Remember the heart. We've talked about this verse a number of times, and we'll say it again. Finally, brothers, this is from Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, then think about these things. One of the points Paul is making here is that we are formed by what we think about, by what we love, by what we give our time, attention, and energy to. And therefore, we need to be certain that what we are pursuing is the things that are in accord with the character and vision for human flourishing, the goodness of God. That's just a baseline principle. What that means is we need to step into the arts with a perspective of seeking discernment. It requires discernment to do this well. You know, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is again, he's quoting a pagan catchphrase that says, all things are permissible, and he responds, well, sure, but not all things are beneficial. Not all things are beneficial, and such is the case with art and pop culture. Um, we can use art and pop culture, very, it's so obvious for us to say this, we need to say it in ways that are to our own detriment. And I think we need to fight, I thought of four kind of prevailing impulses we need to fight against. One is just distraction. No, I want to say out of, the, out of the gate, there's nothing wrong with diversion. Like, we all have stressors, and it's really nice to just turn on The Office or whatever. I, I think The Office is a great show, by the way. Uh, but, it, you know, so many of us are just like, The Office is always playing, you know. It's just like my comfort food or whatever. There's nothing wrong with simple kind of just, like, the desire to be entertained, to kind of be diverted from what's going on in life. But, but we need to recognize that is a real temptation to do that too much. And if that's all we're ever doing... Uh, well, it's going to be greatly to our detriment, but we also will probably miss out 
on a lot if we don't push ourselves to engage with more challenging works that might have a higher capacity to de deposit something in us, like from those categories we talked about. So we don't want to use art merely for distraction. Second thing is we, we, we want to fight against oversimplification. Christians are often too rigidly shortchanging critical engagement with both secular and Christian art. Uh, it's very easy for us as Christians to go, oh, well, if this is Christian art, it must be good. You know, I'll, I'm only going to watch Christian movies or whatever. And we can actually end up being kind of malformed by that because a lot of those movies, I think we intuitively know, just they're not truthful. They're not truthful in the way they talk about these things. They don't capture kind of the right complexity. Some of them do. Some of them do not. And on the, on the flip side, we can be the kind of hip and cool Christians who just blindly accept every trendy show that comes out or whatever. And we're just like, oh yeah, I'm up on all the stuff. I just engage everything. There's never any time where I say no to something for the benefit of my own soul. That's not right, friends. We will be malformed by that. But I think C.S. Lewis had a good point in his book, An Experiment in Criticism, or, I, or it might be an essay. He said, we sit down before the picture in order to have something done to us not that we may do things with it. The first demand of any work of art make, that any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive, get yourself out of the way. There is no good asking whether the work before you deserves such a surrender, for until you've surrendered, you cannot possibly find out. I think he's onto something there. We can't use our preformed ideas and categories necessarily to, to determine if something is worth us, even if it's done by a so-called Christian artist or secular artist. If we're all image bearers and we all have these capacities, there will be goods and gifts and benefits, regardless of who's creating the art to be found. But let's keep going. A third thing we should fight against is permissiveness. I've already hinted at this, but the command to flee sin certainly applies to our consumption of art. And this is going to be different for every person. We're all wired differently. We all have different temptations, of course. Um, but, but, we can, we can and should avoid art that would stir up the wrong things within us. Instead, we pursue that which stirs up the good, the beautiful, and the true within us in accordance with God. And then maybe a fourth thing I would say, a, a fourth impulse is addiction. Um, again, endless media consumption can become this form of self-medication. -medica and, and the more that you give yourself over to it, the more adverse the, the effects are. And the age of streaming makes this quite the temptation. I mean, we all joke about just like endlessly binging Netflix shows or whatever, but it's like, that's, that's real. This, there's technology here that's designed to keep you hooked, to keep you always watching the next episode, always needing to keep up with the new series so that you can talk with everybody and be conversant about it all. And the end result is that you will crowd out deeply important things for your own life, your own family, your own spiritual formation if we give ourselves over to just this extreme binging culture. It's not even a good way to engage. Even if you're watching the most worthwhile TV series or whatever that has deep things to impart to you, if you're just rifling through it, you know, half asleep, you're not going to get what's there. You're not going to get the benefit of it. So media addiction is a real thing. It's never been easier to be addicted. We need to, we need to fight against it. Okay. That's it for now. Practical stuff. The last thing I would say is this. With all of these things, the, the idea is that we want to follow these gifts up to the gift giver. So right now, wherever you're at, I want you to think, think about a time that you were deeply moved by a piece of art. Maybe it's visual art, maybe it's a film, a show, a piece of music, sculpture maybe, I, whatever it may be. Just, I'm going to give you a second. Think, what was the time? It doesn't matter how you were moved, just that you were moved powerfully. Give you a second to, to get that in your head. Okay, holding that in your head, I want you now to consider, to connect the dots, that that experience was the result of human creativity as a capacity of that artist being made in the image of God. Whoever they were, whoever they were, I, I don't have to know who they were and what their story is to say that their capacities and their aptitudes to create that thing were given by God. Whether they were a believer or not, their art was a channel of their own creative power. But even more than that, 
your receptivity of it, your ability to see it, to take it in, to process it, to, to do something with it, was the result of the capacities that God gave you. I love the way that uh, poem Malcolm Guite, Malcolm Guite says this in his little book, Lifting the Veil. He says, for most people, he's talking about how, how often we get in, in our lives as we're going out, we just get these little glances of the divine, of, of the sublime, of heaven, as he puts it. He's a Christian poet, by the way. He says, for most people, the glance at heaven is just that. It's a glance and no more. A fleeting glimpse, easy to dismiss and overwrite, ignore and explain away. But the artist and poet, by the magical bodying power of imagination, is able to make a body and build a home for that fleeting glimpse, that airy nothing that is always escaping us. The artist makes a home in which the glimpse can root and grow, be found again and again, made knowable and available to us. We have that experience constantly in returning to poems, paintings, and sculptures which keep giving more than they have, flowing with new life on each visit because the glimpse which imagination has bodied forth in them has a home in which it can grow into something of great consistency. The artist in her imaginative bodying forth is building a bridge between apprehension and comprehension. All great art is a bridge with one foot in the world of comprehension, the visible, the earth, and another foot in the realm of apprehension, the invisible, heaven. So we are right to celebrate our human artists who achieve such things. But more than that, may we praise God whose grace enables and upholds it all. Amen? The same God who graces us with these sublime moments of human art is the same God who graces us in the most profound way possible. Does he really care about you? Yes, he does. He does. Not just by empowering good artists to do cool things, that's amazing, but by sending his own son to die in your place, to give himself for you. So every one of these little graces is just a shadow of the fundamental character and beauty and goodness of God that we most clearly see by Christ crucified. It's all connected. It's all connected. So, God loves us, friends in ways that are surprising. I'm still being surprised, even as I'm preparing these messages and stuff, like how deep his love and his affection and his splendor and his glory and his creativity goes. And it's amazing to see the ways in which all of it, ultimately, you still find right there with Jesus Christ on the cross, outstretched arms, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Saying to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. My grace is sufficient. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. and every good thing. Let's pray.